Hey everyone, it is Zoe here. Welcome back to Motherkind and to this episode, the show that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity and self-awareness. I believe the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children is to become the most empowered, resilient, confident versions of ourselves. And this podcast exists to help you do just that. This week's guests are the comedy legends that are the scummy mummies, Helen Thorne and Ellie Gibson. I followed and loved them for a long, long, long time. So it was such a joy to get to chat to them. We chat about so much, setting world records, how to moderate your drinking, post-divorce transformation and what mothers really want for Mother's Day. It's a brilliant episode. I loved far too much, probably too much. Sorry if my constant chuckling is annoying, but obviously they are absolutely hilarious. I hope you love it. Here it is. I'm really excited to chat to you. You, I just feel like I know you because I followed you for so long and I can't believe it's taken me this long to get you on the podcast. So I'm really excited to chat. There's so much we've got to chat about. I want to chat about world records. I want to talk about drinking and I want to talk about running. Those are our specialist subjects. If you just put video games in there, we'd be bingo, full house. All right, I'm not so into video games. Maybe you can persuade me. Nah, don't bother. If you're not into it, don't bother. That's it. <laughs> it's like football. If you're not into it, fine. Leave it alone. I was doing a bit of research yesterday. I feel like you guys are just in surely peak busy. You're like training to go to Everest. Ellie, you've just smashed a world record. Helen, you're like running faster than Forrest Gump, further than Forrest Gump. You're just incredible. Tell us what's going on. It's clearly obvious that we are tarts for attention. Like we just can't get enough attention. One thing, having a podcast, another thing, doing shows. Now we've just got to up our game. We don't want to sleep. We want to be very tired and we want a lot of attention. I think that's it. It's just a midlife crisis, basically. It's just a midlife crisis manifesting in different ways. So it's nothing to be proud of, really. Is it a crisis? Because to me, it looks like both of you are coming massively into your own does it feel like that or does it feel like we're just going for it not really I've always done loopy stuff like you know it was only 10 years ago I basically said to my husband yeah I've had a baby I've decided to be a comedian now do you know what I mean like ask him he'll say he says there's always something there's always something (laughs) (laughs) so before pre-baby you'd never done comedy is that right No, Helen had, but I did a comedy course. That's how I got started when my son, Charlie, he would have been about nine months old or something. So no, was it later than that? Because it was 2013. God, I've totally lost track of time. He must have been older than that. 2011, he was born. A year and a half. I don't know. I don't even know how old he is now. 24, 13, no one knows. But yeah, I started doing it after I had a baby because I wanted, I'd always wondered if I could do it and thought I was funny. And I was a video games journalist. I used to write funny stuff. But I sort of thought... When I had the baby, actually, I was very lucky. I had a lot of support and I didn't struggle very much when he was born. I was really happy. And I sort of thought, well, I can go and try that out now. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because I'm actually really happy at home. But also it was nice to have something for myself that was basically an excuse to go to a pub every Monday night for six weeks. It was delightful. So many people will find that just deeply inspiring and quite far away from their own experience. I mean, to be honest, learning a new skill like that was the last thing on my mind when I had a nine month old. Did you go along there and think, do you know, I'm quite good at this? Or did you have that imposter sort of, you know, so many women have like, oh, am I? Is this okay? Or were you like, fuck it, I'm just going to go for it. 
I was definitely like, fuck it, I'll go. But, but I did wonder if it would work out. Yes, it did feel like, well, here we go. Let's find out. Do you know what I mean? Let's see. We know we can write funny. Let's see if we can perform and let's see what it's like. But what was great was I, I did this course and, you know, I turned up on the first night and there were just people from all different backgrounds and ages and experiences and expectations. There were people who were there who were doing it for a bet. There were people who were already comedians who wanted to improve. There were people in their 70s who were just estate agents and thought it'd be a laugh. I loved that. And it really felt like a team and like a sort of almost like a sort of group therapy thing (laughs) that we were all supporting each other. And it didn't really matter how any of us did. It's so funny because I had an opposite experience to that. When I was younger, I was in the theatre, always wanted to be an actress and always harboured this secret sort of resentment because my mum and dad were like, no, you have to buckle down and go to school and do your exams and all that. And so when I was, how old have I been? About 28, I went to an acting class on a Friday night at City Lit Uni. It was an amazing class. I was terrible. It was the best thing that I could have done because I was instantly like, I phoned my mum, I was like, I'm so happy you made me go to uni, mum. I would have been screwed had I tried to be this great. I was like, when I say the worst in the class, and this was like an and dram, like there was 90-year-old guys in there that were better than me. It was so funny and I was so happy I did it. Oh, me too. And there were, de- look, there were definitely people in my class who were better than me. It wasn't like I went and I absolutely smashed it from lesson one and that was it. And then I did incredibly well. But, you know, I learned a lot doing the course and then I've learned even more obviously in the 10 years that Helen and I have been together. So now, absolutely, I'm, I'm probably one of the top three funniest people definitely. in the world. Take that imagine, title. Yeah. Take that title. How did you guys meet? It'll be 10 years on the 2nd of April. We met at a a fairly mediocre stand-up gig in southeast London in a place called Deptford. It was one of those gigs where budding comedians could just rock up and you booked a spot. The comedy venue itself was a shipping container under a flyover next to a pizza bus. And and we both were just budding stand-up comedians. I'd done stand-up in Australia and I'd had two children and I'd just come back to it. So, yeah, that's how we met, doing stand-up. I just remember thinking Ellie was the funniest person I'd ever seen. She's very cool. She was in a leather jacket. She came out really confidently. I thought, oh, God, she's been doing stand-up for ages. But she'd just finished that stand-up course. And then, um, yeah, we had a pint of beer afterwards and went, oh, you, you were great. You were great. And I just, yeah, I was just so, oh, wow, this woman's awesome. I want to be her friend. So yeah, that's how it all sort of began. And we just sort of started hanging out from there. And that was, yeah, so that was the April. And then the Scummy Mummies podcast, which was Ellie's idea, came out in the July that year, just a few months later. Because you guys were like one of the first, right? In terms of the big mummy podcasts. Yeah, we recorded it all on cassettes, actually. And what we'd do, we'd just play that people would log on on the internet and then they would press play and then we'd play a cassette into a microphone and that's how they listened to it back in those days. <laughs> yes, it's different time. Different times, different times. <laughs> what do you reckon has been the secret of your partnership? Because lots of partnerships don't get to 10 years, do they? Because it's sort of business, pleasure. Lots of marriages don't get to 10 years, do we? <laughs> exactly. We're going to talk about that, Helen. Don't you worry. <laughs> I think, I think, you know, there's lots of factors why relationships work. I think, I think the, the success or the reason we kept going is lots of factors. You know, we're good friends. We support each other through really hard times, but also it changes. We, we do podcasts, we do writing, we do the shows. There's been a lot of drinking, less so now, but also I think people like our friendship. I think that's one of the things that people come to us, you know, as opposed to a single mummy blogger or, or whatever, that they like the dynamics and, and we're too 
completely different characters, even though we're both scumbags, I think they can sort of identify with one of us, you know, as well. So I think, I think that's good. And also money's a pretty nice thing. You know, now we're actually making a small amount of money. That's a kind of a motivation as well. But it, yeah, it's been a laugh and I, and I love that every week is different. Like, you know, we'll do podcasts, we'll go tomorrow, we're going on the radio. Like, you know, I think it's not just the same thing. And interesting, I remember reading an article, I think female double acts last longer than male or, you know, there's less tension because I think male egos kind of clash by women champion each other. Like every time Ellie does something, I feel that joy. Like I am so excited by Ellie's success and, you know, world records and the video games and anything Ellie does, you know. So I think there's that element in within a female double act that may hurt the other male, you know, basic slaying off men. But But I think that's the joy in it as well. Yesterday I saw that picture of you crying at the finish line of the half marathon and you were saying you just read a message from Ellie and you had her name on your hand and I was, you're so right. It's that support and the absolute clear love that you have for each other. It's actually really, really beautiful in a world where it's not, it's not always like that. Yeah, and no, I don't think we would still be together for 10 years if that wasn't genuine. And and I think people would recognise if that wasn't authentic. And I think, yes, there's the emotional element of it, but also to be honest, from a business perspective, I look at anything either as achieves is for the good of the whole. You know, Scummy Mummies is an entity, not to make it sound like a sort of mystical thing, but it's a business, right? It exists as its own thing. And so anything either of us does, you know, a personal success counts as a group success. It all builds into that. So I think both from a personal and from a business perspective, it makes sense. Yeah. So tell us about some of the spin-off because Helen, I read your book. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> so good. I was having a bit of a rocky time and I, I read it and yeah, I absolutely loved it. Three years since post-divorce. Tell us how you're feeling and what are some of the really big things that you've learned in the last three years? Big question. Yeah, it's funny. It was my three-year anniversary on Sunday and it was a weird sort of thing to think, you know, how life has changed in that time. Obviously, my divorce was very abrupt because I found out about my husband's affair on World Book Day, people, of all... (laughs) If it's not bad enough. God, I know, that fucking hell show. Anyway, so I became single just before the pandemic, so I had to go into the pandemic in a really bad state. But honestly, it has been the best thing that happened to me, really, becoming single. You know, I sort of got into fitness, but I I sort of reclaimed myself and I, I feel stronger. But I also got held together by Ellie and all these amazing women and also sharing my story of being a single mum on the Scummy Mummies has been a really good thing because all these women who've gone through it, who are, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ahead of me have really strengthened my resolve as well. So I couldn't imagine, and I still don't realise how happy I am now. And it's sort of the happiness I thought I would get from being in a marriage. But, you know, I am in <laughs> essentially in a marriage now anyway with Ellie, like in a, in a partnership. So I love that I've explored exercise and got stronger. I've done lots of dating, all those sort of things. And, you know, I've sort of had this second adolescence in a way. I've had a few blowouts and some things I'm not particularly proud of, but, you know, it's been a process really. And writing the book's been great. I mean, Ellie did an amazing chapter in it as well. I think you'll find that's probably the best bit in the book, to be honest. That's the feedback I've had, certainly. Yeah, all the the reviews said that. So Yes, yes, exactly right. Just get it for the Ellie Gibson chapter. My chapter's actually been serialised for Netflix as we speak. It's going to be very good. 
<laughs> but yeah, look, I look, I, I can't say I've done it in a particularly. I didn't set out the day I found out about my husband's affair to completely reinvent myself. I was a big, a big hot mess for a lot of time, and I smoked a lot of fags, I've drunk a lot of drink, and you know, banged a few blokes I shouldn't have. But you know. <laughs> I'm better for it. So I think, I think that's been great. And the single parent community is amazing. I've met new friends because of it and I love it. And I I think I'm a better mum. I really, really, really appreciate. It's really hard work and I'm tired all the time and I'm doing washing in the middle of the night just so they've got the PE kit and all that sort of stuff. But I do find it easier than living with a dickhead. And that's a joy. (laughs) When you said reclaim yourself, what are some of the parts that you'd you'd lost in order to reclaim? Because I think so many women feel that in their marriages that they're just being chipped away at. I didn't realise all the sort of microaggressions and the put downs and how much I'd sort of shrunk myself in sort of metaphorical way. And that all my focus within that relationship was making him happy. What could I do? How do I make him happy? Even though my career was going really well, you know, I love being a mum and all that sort of stuff. But I couldn't make him happy. And I found that really frustrating. I thought, you know, I make people happy in my job. I know I can love my friends well, and I know that I'm loved in that capacity. So just choosing myself, you know, choosing to put myself forward for new things, learning new skills, like just painting my kitchen, doing things that I always thought I couldn't do. I loved your dishwasher post the other day. Absolutely. If my husband and I get divorced, it will be over the dishwasher. (laughs) Oh my God. I lob it in. Guy, I swear. Yeah, just throw it in. He's one step away from getting a tape measure out. I swear he is mental about the dishwasher. I think one of the most healing things that I did was write down all the things that really, really shat me about that ex-husband of mine. And I just thought, all the things I, I did in the house, everything, I would brace myself for his criticism. I would brace myself for, oh, you've done that wrong. You've done that wrong. You've done that wrong. Why are you like this? And so when you live in that sort of state, I think I was just in high tension. And I still have moments where like I was painting the stairs and put yellow paint up the wall. And I thought, oh God, he's going to come home and be cross. And I thought, what? That's still in my brain, having someone in that sort of, you're just not good enough, or it's all going to be bad. And I think that takes time and, you know, lots of therapy to get through. But yeah, I just, I love feeling free. And, you know, I'm I'm far from perfect. And the house is a bit of a tip still, but I feel like I've got some control back. And, you know, and Ellie has been this amazing kind of guru in terms of like, you can say no, you can stand up for yourself and all that sort of stuff. So I think I've felt stronger and it's not easy. I'm still not comfortable going could I please have that, please? You know, I'm still getting there. But, um, you know, I've gone from a real people pleaser to actually having some strength and a bit of authority within myself. So that's been great. And I now I've got a huge collection of really disgusting underwear, like naughty things and, you know, discovered that side of myself. But that's calmed down a bit. I'm through the slut phase, let's say. <laughs> What's the next phase going to be? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I think I'm just tired, just that rest phase. The tired phase, yeah. Sleeping. And Ellie, I wanted to talk to you about your new podcast, which looks amazing because I am, am I nine years sober? What made you want to start that and tell us about where you're at unraveling all those threads of your own drinking? So I've always liked drink, basically. I do like it. I still like it. 
But then in the lockdown, we got into drinking quite a lot. Me and my husband, we were drinking quite a lot. And I started to wonder like about a year and a half ago, I was like, am I drinking too much? And it's that thing, isn't it? You know, I'm not putting vodka on my cornflakes, but I was drinking pretty much most, if not every night. And I was worried about how much I was drinking. Again, not drinking to blackout or getting in any trouble, but I was just like, wine was just a part of my day. And I was just like, I don't know. So I sort of started looking into it because I was thinking, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I don't think I want to give up, go sober. And I want to say, obviously, brilliant. Well done you for doing that, Zoe. And well done to anyone for whom that's the right choice. Absolutely respect that. And I did wonder about that. I thought maybe that's what I need to do, but I wasn't sure. So I started looking into... um, resources for cutting down and I found that there wasn't actually that much out there like Adrian Charles has done some marvelous work especially for women as well I feel like it can feel quite binary it can feel like either we're all pissed all day and you know gin 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 and wine o'clock or it, we're all sober and that's great and we're never going to drink it both of which are different perspectives, but I didn't feel like I fit in with either group anymore. So I ended up finding this woman called Stephanie Chivers online, who runs a thing called Women Who Don't Drink, which despite the name, she deals with a lot of people who want to moderate as well. I did a course with her, like a course of sessions with her, and so did my husband. And it just totally changed our drinking habits. It was so interesting. And when I started talking to my friends about it and other women about it, they were like, oh yeah, I think I drink a bit too much. Every time I go on club soda, I feel I'm just feel like I'm made to feel guilty because I want a glass of wine with my dinner and I don't I mean that's the whole thing I wouldn't say I, I love club soda and I wouldn't say they're doing that I would say well I've learned that that's you've got to look at yourself about that what you're reading for that but anyway that's a whole other conversation so after that I just thought well you know well let's do a podcast I enjoyed talking to Stephanie so much it was so illuminating I was just like well let's just do a little a little thing for a laugh really and have some guests on and it was brilliant that's what I like about podcasts you just get it's just an excuse to talk to people you find interesting and if other people want to listen to it good luck to them I don't really mind <laughs> I feel exactly the same about this. Exactly the same. What helped you moderate? Because I know pretty much everyone listening will relate to that idea of wanting to moderate because it's quite universal. How did you moderate? Well, to start off with, so I will say that often Stephanie starts by getting people to take a break from booze, like a month or something like that. And that way you learn the benefits. You get all those lovely things like you sleep better and your skin looks better and you save money and you lose weight and all those great things. I'd actually done that quite recently because Helen and I, we don't have to talk about it. We did run the marathon. So I'd given up booze for a month. So I knew those benefits and I knew I could do it. So I sort of skipped that bit. But my husband did that and found it really helpful. So what worked for me was keeping a sort of record of what I was drinking. Now, I found it quite difficult to do the whole like writing down 250 milliliters of Merlot, 4.15 p.m. I found that a bit tiring. But I sort of just monitored what days I was binge drinking, what days I was having sober and what days I was having. I set myself a rule of a maximum of three drinks. And then with Stephanie, I just learned to be a bit more, you know, the word mindful is used a lot, isn't it? But thinky, let's say that, to sort of think, you know, oh, I've had two glasses of wine. Do I actually need another one? Do I actually want another one? What's the cost benefit ratio? Will I feel a bit shitter tomorrow if I have another one? Will I actually feel that much better if I have another one? And sometimes the answer is yes, I'm at a lovely wedding and there's champagne flowing and it's all delightful. I'm going to have another drink or possibly three other drinks. But I just think a bit more now about when I'm doing that rather than sort of mindlessly just pouring another, emptying another bottle of Sauvignon into my gullet. So yeah, it's been a, oh, I don't like to use the word. It's been a journey. It's a journey, Zoe. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, journey. It's, been, well, it's just awareness, isn't it? You're just bringing that awareness to it. 
because it's so easy I think to get into that habit and that pattern and then as you say you're suddenly like oh my god I think that's what so many women experience yes and I found it quite easy when I had a thing to do like the marathon or like a big or like when I did a tv show a few years ago if I had a big show I find it very easy not to drink so I knew I could do it but I just needed to make that the general habit rather than constantly all right here's this big task we've got to achieve therefore so yeah and how do you feel about it now do you feel like you've got it you feel really comfortable with your relationship with booze well yes to be honest but that sounds very smug and that's because I am smug I'm smug too. I'm smug about being sober. It's all good. <laughs> I'm aware that it's something you you can't just sort of go, oh, well, I've done that now. Therefore, I can, you know, have six glasses of wine every night again. And it is an ongoing thing, but I've changed my habits. To be honest, I sort of enjoy booze a bit more now because it feels like a bit more of a treat. I love having a pint of lager after the show with me curry. I bloody love it. But I've realised I don't need three one or two is actually fine and that's good I think so yeah anyway listen to the podcast it's called sort your shit out but the point is about sort your shit out it's not just me babbling on crap like this about my journey it's got Stephanie on it and it's got actual experts it's got professors and academics but also women who've been through it and women who were like sort of further down the drinky scale than I was and who have now gone sober or who are now moderating and I found hearing their stories as well really useful yeah, because you had the lovely cat on recently, didn't you? Cat Sims, yes. Yeah, he's been doing some amazing work talking about her, her journey. Love that word. Quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. As you will know, if you're a regular listener, I love AG1 from Athletic Greens. It's a green powder. You mix with water and you drink it every day to fill nutrient gaps, promotes your gut health and supports whole body vitality. Sounds good, doesn't it? One daily serving delivers a powerful blend of nine health products. It's like a multivitamin, minerals, probiotics, adaptogens, and more, which work together to help you feel like your healthiest self. Now, I know it's ideal if we can get everything we need from our food, but I also know the reality for many of us, me included, is that we're eating cold toast for lunch. And that is where AG1 is so incredible. I see it as like an insurance policy for my health. And I know this is so obvious, but we all need to hear it every single day. Your health matters. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You just casually dropped in the marathon there and I need your help because... I decided for my 40th year, which is this year, that I was going to run a marathon. I signed up for one on the 3rd of April and I am I am so far off the training plan. So I need help. I need to know how did you fit in the training around everything else? Because I keep deprioritizing the training. I can't stick to the plan. It is a pain in the ass and it takes a lot of time. I know. I'm, I don't know why I didn't think about this before. There's so many better things to be doing. You could be completing Netflix. You could be eating biscuits. You could be having a bath. I mean, you could do a lot of things other than run. And I think that's the hardest thing. And I find it, especially when you're meant to do the long runs, like on a Sunday, you know, 
I want to hang out with my kids. I want to have a roast. I want to have three glasses of Merlot and pass out on the couch watching First Wives Club. Yeah, it takes over your life. The last eight weeks of marathon training are the most boring. But I really enjoy, Ellie always used to say, the smuggery or feeling good afterwards. You never not feel good after having a run. And you don't have to do it on a Sunday and you don't have to, you know, you can fit in, if you can, the runs around other bits of your thing. But it is it is quite tedious. Like I'm in the bit leading up, I'm doing the Copenhagen Marathon in May and I was meant to do a 32K run yesterday, but after 18K, my leg just went, no, sorry, my leg's hurting now. So for the next two weeks, I've just got to rest before we go to Nepal. So it is hard, but you don't have to run at all and everyone gets the same medal. Believe it or not, you will get the same marathon medal as Mo. And if you walk a bit, take a bit, it's just a great day out. And don't put pressure on yourself. You don't have to do it fast. You don't have to do it in a particular way. Just run your own race. That'd be my advice. Walk it, walk it backwards. Walk it wearing a duck suit. I don't care. No one cares what time you did. I cared about my time. I didn't get the time I wanted to get because I got sick on the thing, but I finished it. And like hardly anyone asks you what your time is. I don't even remember mine. You're just like, you did a marathon and that's cool. I like the phrase, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, just like Helen says, just walk it. You've still done it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's true. I'm definitely putting too much pressure on myself. And I'm quite competitive with my husband and he did it in 4.15. Oh, wow. Oh, why did it in 4.14? In his face. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the thing is, though, you, know, you, know, <laughs> you know that you said. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's, that's that. just made me feel really jolly. <laughs> it's really fucking sad. <laughs> that is a bloody impressive time, though. That is really impressive. How did you get into it? You started with a running coach, is that right? Ellie did running before me and I started as more of a midlife crisis thing about six years ago. When I did my first 5K, I did it in 55 minutes. And then I did my first race for life, I think about five years ago, and that was 38 minutes. And I thought that was pretty swift. And then it's just got quicker and quicker over time. But we did get a running coach because we got asked by Bryony Gordon to run the marathon in our pants about four years ago. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that. But I remember getting that phone call. Do you remember we were on tour early and Bryony rang and said, do you want to run a marathon in our pants? And I was like, what do you reckon, Ellie? And she's like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. And that's sort of how it, how it happened. There was no great plan. We just went, we like attention. We like doing stupid things in our underwear. Let's do it. But also I think, Zoe, like if you're not going to do it, or you, whatever you don't, maybe it's not for you. When we finished the marathon, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I signed myself up for loads of other, I'd had knee problems, but I'd done, and I'd had this sick problem doing it, but I signed myself up for loads more races and stuff. And I was like, brilliant. And then my knee like properly went and it never really recovered. And the physio was like, marathon's not for you. And I was really, really upset for a bit. And then I started doing other stuff. So now I do a bar, like a ballet fitness class on a Monday and I do hit training a few times a week and we're doing this trek because I could walk fine and all this stuff. And actually I've gone, oh, actually I quite like doing different stuff. The training for marathons is very intense and it is a lot. And I didn't know 
doing all that training. I'm really glad I did it, but I didn't quite realize that I was actually training myself to get into a fitness mindset and get into the idea that I can do exercise. And it doesn't actually matter what kind of exercise that is, or that you don't get a medal for all of it. Like my Monday bar class, I absolutely love it. I love the music and I love that we do it as a group. And I love that there's, there's like an 82 year old lady we do it with. And then there's all these girls that look like they should be on Love Island. And we're all dancing and also grimacing because it's much harder than it looks. And there's a joy in that that's different from running, but it's equally as good and it takes a third of the time. So just saying, maybe if it's not for you, but I think try something else. It's such a good point, Ellie. I think you might have hit the nail on the head there because I've never properly prioritized exercise in my life. And I think that's what I'm bumping up against with these training plans. I'm not going to do the one in April because I just there's no way I'd get around a date. Even shuffling around a date, I'd get around. But I found another one later in the year that I'm going to try. But I keep getting ill. I keep doing these long-ish runs and then I'm getting really ill. And then I'm having to have like two weeks off and then, I don't know. It's a bit of a head mess, this marathon thing. But I think just getting out of the house, like I find I've got to have a couple of weeks rest and even just going for a walk up in the the woods across the road from my house. Like I think the benefits of just leaving your house and just not being on a screen or just having time out for yourself, like we were talking about before, is infinitely more satisfying or whatever than, you know, going, oh, I've got to do it in this time or whatever. The pressure you can put on yourself is a lot. And I don't think that's particularly healthy either. Like do stuff you love and then it's not a chore. Or do stuff you hate, but then motivate yourself in some sort of way. So I know this is an option for everybody, but I joined a a nice gym with a spa with like jacuzzis and saunas and all that. So now on the days I'm like, oh, I don't really want to go and lift weights and do kickboxing for an hour. That's tedious. I just think, but afterwards you can sit in a jacuzzi and read a book for half an hour. I'd be lying if I said I loved exercise all the time or I enjoyed every minute of it. I, I don't, and I don't want to do it many, many times. So if you can think maybe if it's not a gym, if it's something else, if it's half an hour of Netflix or whatever it is, I've found that to be personally really helpful. What do you read in the jacuzzi? I've got waterproof Kindle, so anything I like is marvellous. Oh, Ellie. I like it. I like it. I was imagining you there with like a soggy paperback. Oh, I've done that as well. I've done that as well. Often if we've got a guest coming on our podcast and we need to read the book, I'll just take the book into the jacuzzi and I'll hold it out the water like that. It's delightful. I'm loving that image. You guys are in the middle of your live shows, right? So are you in Wales tomorrow and you've just done... We did Cheltenham and Lancaster last week and we did our two big... Massive shows at the Catford Broadway. The jewel of South East London is the Broadway theatre. But yeah, we've got 60 dates this year. And so it's pretty exciting. We're not doing Edinburgh. We're going to have August off, aren't we, for the first time for a while. And we're doing our greatest hits tour. Some may say lazy. Others would say, well, no, it's a celebration of 10 years. <laughs> reuse the content. Reuse the content. Oh, God. Yeah, we've got new <laughs> costumes, haven't we, Ellie? We've got some video content in there. We've got new costumes. We've got a new set. Like we put all the bells and whistles on it. We've got songs that we haven't performed for five years because we kind of got sick of them, but people really love them and ask about them. So we were like, oh, why not? Let's do that. And it's also a sort of bringing together because obviously when we started out, we were quite young mums. We were both married. You know, we were doing all that stuff. And obviously we've been through a lot of life experiences in that time and our, our bodies have changed, you know, our experience have changed. So we wanted to bring all that in. Not that it's any sort of deep layered narrative arc or anything, but It's got a wider variety of jokes than where we first started. Let's put it like that. (laughs) The good news is that although most of the show will be the same, 
the end is always different for every show that we do because we get the audience to write down scummy mummy confessions. So they're sort of funny stories of parenting failure or whatever. And then we read out the best ones and they're different every time. And every single show, there's one that we've like never heard before that just makes us laugh or is so awful we can't read out. But it's never the same. At least that last five minutes of the show is never the same twice. And often it's the best bit, to be quite honest, because you can't write funnier than the real nonsense people people get up to so at least you got someone else's funny to look forward to what's been the one that's cracked you up the most of those confessions oh so many there's been so many one recently that really tickled everyone's fancy was a woman took her child to the park and the kid said oh I need a wee the kid went behind a tree and did a massive poo anyway she walked around but then seconds later a man with a dog walked around and he thought the dog had done the massive poo. So picked up the child's poo in a dog poo bag and took it away. (laughs) That was good. We've had a few times people hiding children in suitcases to save money on like hotel rooms. But my favourite one of those was, I don't know if you've ever been to Centre Parks, but you drive into Centre Parks, there's a little reception and they check how many people there are in the car. So there was this family of five and to save money on only getting a two-bedroom lodge, they put one of the children in the boot so that when they drove through, it just looked like there was four of them. So they drove through, it was all fine. They turned around the corner and they were like, oh, all right, Davey, you can't come out now, you're right in there. And there was just silence. And they were like, oh, my God, oh, God, he's suffocating. Oh, my God, he's suffocating. And they went and opened the boot and the child was just rocking backwards and forwards with laughter, just like you absolute morons. <laughs> and I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> oh, my God, that poo one, though, that poor guy. Yeah, there's a few themes that get kind of, we, we sort of see, which is kind of nice because we're sort of in this, you know, we're in this privileged position for 10 years. We've sort of seen all of Britain's mothering and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we've got thousands of these confessions. One day we should do something with them. But it's a book in that. Not a very well-paid book, we've discovered, so we're waiting for someone to come up with a bigger check. But uh, there is a book. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Ellie? I just sort of assumed you meant like anything, like magical sort of... Can be anything, can be anything, Absolutely anything. I would, and I mean this, and again, this is just really about me. This is what I'd really. I would love like a button, like a little key fob, like you have for your car, but you could just press it and just pause time. Just the whole world suddenly just stands still because sometimes something lovely's happened. Like you're looking at your little child, or whatever, and they're doing something lovely, or they're being quiet for once. You just sort of want to bottle it and remember it and capture it, but you can't because they run across the room or wet themselves or something. So that, but also just so sometimes you're so exhausted and you're so, oh, and you just think if I could just pause this and just go to bed for an hour, all of this would be all right. Do you know what I mean? Or if I just had an hour to put this laundry away, then it would all be fine. So that's what I'd like, a magic button to control time. I mean, science can't be that far away from it. Surely Apple are working on that as we speak. Surely we can invent that. I mean, come on. Love it. Helen? I would say like a compulsory weekend off. We're about to hit Mother's Day, but that's we know that's bullshit because you probably end up cleaning up the mess that the children made for making the breakfast. I think there should be just like a full weekend off where all mothers don't have to do anything. It's a bit like what Ellie's saying, like pause the world for a whole weekend because 
the restorative power of going away for the weekend with girlfriends and, and so many of our friends now say, I don't want to go away for the weekend with my husband. I want to go away with my girlfriends. And that is an awesome thing. So yeah, maybe we can just all overtake Centre Park's Ellie and just have a blowout there. But yeah, that's what I would give. Shove a few of us in the boot. So we pay less though, right? <laughs> we'll get a lorry. We'll just get a big lorry. It'll be fine. I'm quite sure I'll go in the boot. I'll take one for the team. It's all good. Nice. If someone has been hiding under a rock for 10 years, where can they find you, book tickets, find out about the shows and other things? Uh, scummymummies.com for all the jazz and all the show dates are on there. And we're coming, well, we're going all sorts of places. We're going up to Rotherham. We're going to Leeds, Newcastle. Where else are we going? Bristol, Brighton. I'm just saying the B ones now. Basingstoke. Barnsley. Yes. We have a lot of bees this year all over. And uh, yeah, just follow us at, at Scummy Mummies on Instagram and obviously listen to Ellie's excellent podcast. And the new merch. There's new merch on the site. I was perusing yesterday. It's there? Yeah. I think we make upwards of 15 quid a month over the merch. So if you want to buy something. We don't promote it enough. We Every time we do a post, we sell loads of it and then we just sort of forget it exists. And then someone goes, I bought one of your mugs and you go, oh, we're not very good at the business, at the merch element. When we first started selling the mugs, after a couple of weeks, we worked out we were making a loss of 50p on every one. So we had to change the price. It's not really our, it's not our strongest pillar. That's so funny. Oh, it's been such a delight. Thank you so much for your time. I've loved it. Thanks, Zoe. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.